Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Still in the Sermon on the Mount, we're chugging along here. This is week 28, 29, something along those lines. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at one verse this morning, and you're going to say, we're never going to get through the Sermon on the Mount if you take it one verse at a time. Uh, But we will, I promise, we'll be done in early February. Matthew chapter 7, the verse we're going to look at this morning is a familiar one to us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. This is the golden rule. We're all pretty familiar with the golden rule. Let me read it for us. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We've seen so much of our time in the Sermon on the Mount has been dedicated to our interactions with others, to right relationship with others. And what does it mean? What does it look like to be a kingdom citizen and interact with other people? What does it look like to be a person who uh, has been called by God, who's been set apart by God, who's been favored by God, and now, uh, now has been established in the kingdom of heaven? What now? So how then do we live? Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 gives us a key into that. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In 1957, Ayn Rand published Atlas Shrugged, an incredibly important book, an incredibly important novel across the landscape of, of, of Americanism. Um, and in the appendix to Atlas Shrugged, she wrote this. My philosophy in essence is the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute. Uh, Now, you don't have to be a philosopher or a biblical scholar to see the problems with what Rand says. Rand says that a man is heroic being. If the Bible is our filter, if we're going to Scripture and God's Word is our filter, we see in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and Romans 3, we're told that there is none who does good, not even one. Rand says that man's happiness is moral purpose of man's life. And the Bible tells us that we will have trouble in this world and that our life is not our own, but this is not our final resting place, rather, which means that our happiness will not always be here in the present, but will exist somewhere else. And our purpose then is to proclaim, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Rand says that reasoning is man's only absolute. But scripture tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the word. He is the incarnate word. He has taken on flesh. And he is our guiding light. Our reasoning faculties are corrupted by sin and therefore cannot be trusted. So what is this woman who wrote this 60 years ago, what does that have to do with us? So what? Rand's understanding of humanity is heavily influenced in the development of the progression of individualism. Essentially, that humans should seek to be self-reliant and independent. We can see that as a hallmark, a very important part of who we are as a society. In today's society, in 2018 now, in Jamestown, North Dakota, we see individualism running rampant in our society. In a column for the Los Angeles Times, Rand would later write in her life, an individualist is a man who says, I will not run anyone's life, nor let anyone run mine. I will not rule, nor be ruled. I will not be master, nor slave. I will not sacrifice myself to anyone, nor sacrifice anyone to myself. And we'll come back to that quote in a little while, because you're probably thinking, what are you talking about? You are insane. Maybe I am. 
But think about me first with a, about a woman named Judy. Judy is a single mom of three. When her kids were relatively young, her, her husband left her for another woman. And that brought a, a, a significant amount of pain for Judy. And she had some friends who she thought she could process with, and she would process with them. But oftentimes they would just leave her embittered because they would validate the feelings, the negative feelings that she felt towards her ex-husband and just the world in general. And as a single mom, she felt empowered when things went well with her kids, when they did well in school, when they got good grades, when they excelled in sports or music or whatever activities they were involved in, she felt empowered. When they did not do well, when they, things did not go well for her children, when they disobeyed her, when they, when they lived in, in ways that she did not deem, uh, deem good, she felt discouraged. And she felt like most relationships that she had in the world, whether they were at church or, or with people at work or just acquaintances that she had from past situations, she felt in most of those instances she was being used. So what she did is she withdrew and she prioritized her own happiness. She would often say something along the lines of, I took care of three kids without anyone else and now it's my turn to take care of myself. And as her kids moved through high school, she became more and more isolated. And many of us, maybe in this room even, are like Judy. Maybe we've experienced emotional or physical or psychological trauma in our lives. And our response is to retreat in onto ourselves. And so society applauds that retreat. Oftentimes it applauds that retreat. It says, cut out the negativity. Be strong. Believe in yourself. Believe anything is possible if you set your mind to it. And those are nice sentiments, but they all assume that you have perfect control over your life and perfect control over the people that you interact with regularly. The fact of the matter is that that's never the case. There is so much of a percentage of our life that is outside of our control that we cannot control. We retreat in and on ourselves when we experience those type of traumas because as a people, we think then we can can control more or have a higher percentage of control. And that's not the biblical understanding of the world that we live in. Think about King David. King David was Israel's greatest king by far, not even close. The Bible tells us that he was a warrior, he was a poet, he was a man after God's own heart. This is a man that God favored very, very highly. Everything, everyone loved King David for the most part. He was loved by his subjects, he was highly respected. But in one area of his life, he struggled immensely, and that was in his family. Something was very wrong (laughs) We could say to the least with his son Absalom. Absalom was rebellious, but but not in like the take the car out and wreck it or the missing curfew sort of way, but in the I want to steal my dad's kingdom sort of way. And so as time progresses, David finds out that Absalom is planning to kill him because it's his own son. He can't fight him. So he goes into hiding. And how does David respond to the situation? How does David live in this situation? He goes into hiding. We know exactly what he, how he responded because in that time he wrote Psalm 4. Let me read Psalm 4 for us. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. 
Be gracious to me and hear my prayer, O men. How long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Does that sound like a man whose son is hunting him? Maybe. Put your trust in the Lord, not yourself is what he says. Show Who will show us good? Not yourself, not your commitment to self-care, but the Lord. It's the Lord who makes you dwell in safety. Lie down and rest. You can be sure that it's not your efforts that are bringing about security, but the God of the universe. And this is not self-reliance. This is not self-determination. This is total dependence of, on God in the midst of a really terrible situation. And so we come to the golden rule and we ask ourselves, how do we respond to situations like Judy's or situations like King David's? When, you throw, when you're thrown in the pressure cooker, how do you respond? Do you turn inward or do you rely on God? If it's to turn inward and isolate yourself, there's a, that's the place to start when considering the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. When Jesus tells his followers to do unto others, he's assuming that they're around other people. That's the first thing that we can glean from this text, this one verse. He assumes that you're around other people. In Psalm 4, Jesus addresses the people around him, the men who have been faithful and have followed him. You see where he says, oh men, and he begins to talk to them for the majority of the psalm. He's talking to the guys around him, reminding them the God they serve and the response they should have towards Absalom. John Stott writes this about the golden rule. The Christian counterculture is not just an individual value system, and lifestyle, but a community affair. It involves relationships. I want to press Stott even a little bit there. If I can, can I do that? I can. I want to press him. It requires relationships, not just involves. And the job of the kingdom citizen is to live in harmony with other kingdom citizens. The job of the kingdom citizen is to live in harmony with other kingdom citizens. The problem is that in the 21st century, Western Christian culture has taken Ayn Rand and mistaken her words for the words of Jesus. And we've largely adopted a point of view that's the same as Rand's quote, an individualist is a man who says, I will not run anyone's life, nor let anyone run mine. And the pressure cooker that David found himself, King David found himself in, puts him in a position where he could not run his own life. But again, he doesn't respond in self-reliance. He puts his complete reliance and dependence on God. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. These are the healthy adult requires seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Scientific fact. 
Seven to nine, a healthy adult, seven to nine hours of sleep. Maybe you're the seven person, maybe you're the nine person. Individualism tells us that that fact should be rejected. (laughs) Because, logical conclusions, Rand says that productive achievement is man's noblest activity. Nine hours of sleep in our society is often viewed as laziness or anti-productive. And our security and our safety is seen as a direct result of our levels of productivity. But for the one who relies on God, is dependent on God, productivity level is not our noblest activity. Our noblest activity is bringing God glory, which requires full dependence on him, not our work, but the work of our King, Jesus Christ. So the kingdom citizen cannot adopt individualism because it makes no room for dependence on God and others. You cannot and will not treat others the way that you want to be treated if you isolate yourself and claim to be the master of your own destiny. King David would later write Psalm 20. In Psalm 20 verse 7, he says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our society has just replaced chariots and horses. Nobody has a chariot, nobody has a horse. Maybe you have a horse. Some people have horses. Nobody has chariots. Nobody has horses. We have bank accounts. We have our careers. We have our education. We have our productivity levels. Some trust in their bank accounts and some in their education. Some trust in their productivity levels. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. So you need to sleep because stock markets crash and because the Unemployment rate fluctuates and unforeseen problems in your day keep you from getting done what you need to get done. And as for David, he hid from Absalom. He didn't trust the men that came with him or his military achievements, of which there were many, or his status in society as the greatest king in Israel's history. He didn't trust any of those things. He trusted in the Lord. And that's the place we must start when considering the golden rule. If you trust in the Lord, you will find who you are. You will find your identity in him. You will not shy away from others, but you will be around them and love them and treat the way you want to be treated. And that leads us then to a second observation that we can make. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The second thing to think about is that the golden rule is always in effect. Always in effect. We tend to hit on this when we see explicit commands in Scripture, that they're always in effect and rarely there's a condition involved. What do I mean by the fact that it's always in effect? The verse begins with, so whatever, and that word whatever might be better translated as in everything or in all things. Jesus immediately removes the possibility that there are exceptions to this rule. The golden rule is all-encompassing. So when you find yourself in a tough spot, when you find yourself in that pressure cooker, your kids are acting out like David's. It's an understatement. His kids are trying to kill him. When your kids are acting out like David's, (laughs) or your husband leaves you in a garbage situation like Judy's, do you do to under others the way that they, you wish they would do unto you? Or do you use your situation as an excuse? You say, you just don't understand my past. That hurt that I feel. My kids kept me awake last night, so I lashed out. I've been sick, so I punched out of our relationship. 
And personally, I do this all the time. I come home, maybe it's been a long day, maybe it's been a tough day. I'm tired because I was up early. And I immediately, this is almost without fail, my wife will tell you this is true, immediately say something offensive or insensitive to my wife. Like almost like, bam, through the door, or my demeanor, my body language, right then and there. I suggest discontent or frustration. Maybe if I had a bad day at the office, things didn't go well, didn't go the way that I wanted them to. So that mean the golden rule is not effect because I'm tired or worn out or burned out? Of course the golden rule still applies. And this is self-sacrifice. Again, when Rand says, I will not sacrifice myself to anyone, she's fundamentally missed the point of everything that Jesus came to do. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this. Someone lay down his life for his friends. Sure, Jesus died for us, but I don't have to lay myself down for others. Well, then consider John, 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This laying down of one's life is love for brother. It does for others that which you wish they would do for you. You set yourself aside. You set aside your pride. You, set, you put your career on hold. You give generously with your time and your energy and your resources. You freely bless others with encouragement. You listen before you speak. You bind up the wounds of others. You weep with those who weep and you laugh with those who laugh. That is what a kingdom citizen looks like. Our lives are meant to bring God glory by existing for others. And every time you choose to treat another person in a way that you would not hope to be treated, you put the golden rule on the shelf. You mock the sacrifice of Christ. Self-determination, self-reliance are an assault against God. So lay down your chariots, lay down your horses, Lay down your vision of the good life or whatever you think will make you happy in the interim and whatever you're trusting other than God. Kingdom citizens always live their lives mindful of others, treating them in the way that they wish to be treated, regardless of how others act or the surrounding circumstances. So the third thing then, after we consider that the golden rule is always in effect, the third thing is that there are no promises on return on investment. There's no promised return on investment. This might be the, the hardest part of the command. What we would have liked Jesus to say is this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, because then they'll do that back to you. That's what we would like him to say. But it all hinges on that little word, wish. For this in the original language, it means desire. Or it means longing. For the kingdom citizens, people treating you poorly does not mean that you have license to treat them in any other way except for the way in which you would like to be treated. Treating others well is not a magic strategy to get through life without trouble. Again, Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So remember earlier in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Remember that. That's what this is about. Those people may stay your enemies. They may still hate you. They may still despise you. They may still ridicule you. 
But there is no action that they can take against you that reduces or removes the command to love your neighbor. You must stay proactive in your love for God and love for others. This is kingdom citizenship. Staying proactive in your love for God and love for others. And Jesus understood that we really don't like this idea. Again, there's no return on investment promised to us in the golden rule. Jesus clearly understood that we really don't like this idea. I'm pretty sure that's why he preached this so clearly and why it's become such a pithy statement in our society. This is so easy to say and so difficult to live. And what it really boils down to is that people continually just get in our way, keep us from doing the things that we want to do and living, living lives of problem-free lives or living our vision of the good life. And I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Joe says it so well. He says this, all thinkers agree that the greatest problem of the 20th century, we could say it for all of human history, all thinkers agree that the great problem of the 20th century is after all the problem of relationships. Sometimes we foolishly tend to think that our international and other problems are economic, social, or political. But in reality, they all come down to this. Our relationships with people. It's not money. No. It is a question of what I myself want and what the other person wants. And ultimately, all the clashes and disturbances and unhappiness in life are due to this. We are tempted to think if people just treat me right, my life would be better. But the only thing Jesus tells us to concern ourselves with is our own love for others. So the final thing that we need to remember when we approach the golden rule, again, this is a consistent theme throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also them, for this is the law and the prophets. The strength to do that comes from God. The kingdom citizen doesn't have to do this stuff on his or her own. The kingdom citizen doesn't have to do this stuff on, on his or her own. There's a power, power, a strength that's given to us if you're in Christ. A strength that's given to us that's not innate, that's not built in. If you try to live and to love others in your own strengths when they treat you poorly, you will certainly fail, 100%. But the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And Jesus was mocked. He was beaten. He was bloodied. He was bruised. He was crucified. He was murdered. But he did not retaliate or respond in anything but love and forgiveness. And in his Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us and empowers us to live like Jesus commands, to live like the golden rule is always in effect. And so this morning, as we wrap up and as we move towards the Lord's table this morning, remembering Jesus' death, we want to consider how we may be caught up in individualism. I'm just going to say this very clearly. Ayn Rand's words, they tarnished the golden rule from a biblical perspective. Its shine is worn down when we think about our quote, an individualist is a man who says, I will not run anyone's life, nor let anyone run mine. I will not be ruled or be ruled. I will not be master nor slave. I will not sacrifice myself to anyone, nor sacrifice anyone to myself. That tarnish, tarnish the, the, the shine comes off. The golden rule is tarnished when we think along those, think in those terms because the gospel is reduced. The golden rule demands dependence of God. Through his word, we find who we are and how we should live. 
we will let another run and rule our lives, our King, Jesus Christ. And the golden rule demands that we take the position of a slave. Later in Matthew's gospel, he'll write this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as the ransom for many. And in Mark 9, 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And Paul tells the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 7, that Jesus took the form of a servant. The golden rule demands self-sacrifice. We must set aside our own agenda and be willing to freely give and love with no expectation of return. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're frustrated with people. Came off the holidays. People went home. You're frustrated. Family members, friends, coworkers. People have hurt us and hung us out to dry like Judy's ex-husband or like David's son Absalom. Maybe not in those extremes, but they have. But as a kingdom citizen, it matters how we respond. King David responded in trust for God. Everything you do has importance. We don't go about thinking our lives and actions have no meaning. Our eating and our drinking, our waking and our sleeping, everything. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the amazing part of that statement isn't that we're eating or we're drinking. Obviously, those are things that we have to do every single day to be sustained in this world, in our bodies that require outside resources. But the amazing part about Paul's statement is that we glorify God even in the mundane. Oftentimes we're tempted to think that we need to do big explosive things in order to bring God glory, and that's just not the case. Our eating and our drinking is enough to reflect God in his glory. We need to get our heads around that. And how do we do that? By admitting our dependence on God and even our eating and our drinking and our waking and our sleeping. We don't declare ourselves independent or self-reliant even in those small mundane acts. Jesus ate bread. He drank wine. He needed to be sustained. He needed to sleep. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, God himself, the word incarnate, he is from the beginning. Yet he humbled himself, he became man, creator, dwelled among his creation. We just got done thinking about this as we thought about the Christmas season and Jesus Christ coming to earth and dying for us. In this humble situation, he was fully God, or fully God and yet fully man and entered into our mundane world and lived among people who were hurtful, who were self-absorbed, who got everything wrong about everything. And he did exactly what he commands us here in verse 12. He did exactly what he commands us here. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And here's the significance of that. This is not a God who sits up there somewhere. We treat God like he sits up on his throne somewhere, just tells us what to do. You guys got to do some stuff. It's not a God who cares little about our hurts or brokenness. This is not a God who set everything in motion and then took a nap. He didn't just yell at us and say, you guys are doing it wrong. Figure it out down there. You're not loving each other right. Let me just tell you how. 
That's not who God is. Rather, this is a God who came to earth not only to tell us how to live, but to show us. He came to earth, he took on flesh. He came and did it from our end, from our point of view, from our standpoint. He said, I'm coming to earth not only to tell you how to love, but to show you also. He came to earth and said, I'm going to lay down my life for you so that you can be whole, so that you can be perfect, so that you can complete, so that you can be holy, so that you can be set apart. And he sympathized with our weaknesses because he lived them. He lived them. I love James Smith's thoughts on this. This is incredible. The God who is love meets us in our banalities or ordinary things. The God who is love meets us in our banalities and teaches us to love from our end. Word, wine, and drink. The most mundane of activities in our day-to-day can bring God glory. And we can bring God glory through loving and treating others the way that we would wish to be treated in our speech, in our eating, and in our drinking. All of these things, they must glorify God. So we turn to the Lord's table and that's what we're going to do. We're going to eat and we're going to drink. And scripture tells us, commands us even, to remember the death of Christ when we come to this table. We see a bread, we see a body broken on our behalf. Jesus understands our weaknesses. He lived here on this earth with people around him who were negative, who were frustrating, who again, who got everything wrong about everything. And yet he lived here perfectly without sin. And his body then is broken for us so that we might be whole, so that we might be complete, so that we might be righteous. Brokenness for our wholeness. And then we have the drink the blood that he spilt and an understanding that we as people need our sins to be removed from us. We need to be washed clean. We need to be made whole. We need to be made new. And so when we come and we participate together, we proclaim his death and that his death accomplished those things for us. Newness in Christ is possible if we trust if we repent of our sin. This is the truth of what we're about to partake in. So this is an activity that we do together as a church. It's a remembrance action that we take. We do it together as a church. We don't do it as individuals, isolated, but we do it together. We participate in this together. We come up, we take the bread, we remember Christ's broken body for our wholeness. We remember the juice. We come to remember his blood shed for us so that we might be forgiven of our sins. And then we celebrate because in the last days when he comes and when we sit together around the table, the marriage supper of the lamb, we will eat together and we will rejoice for all of eternity in his presence. There will never be another tear. There will never be any more brokenness. We will not experience any pain or suffering in the life to come. God has promised this, and in all all of his promises find their yes and amen in Christ. We can be 100% sure that that is true, and that's why we eat. That is why we drink. We glorify God in this time together. So 
what we're going to do is we're going to do that. When you're prepared, the worship team is going to come up and they're going to play and I'm going to pray. You come up, grab the bread, grab the juice. You can take it up here or you can head back to your seat and take it where you're sitting this morning. We ask that you just reflect on the things that we've talked about. Maybe think to yourself, am I at odds with someone in my world? God gives us the great commandment that we love the Lord our God, but then he pairs it, Jesus pairs it with love our neighbor as ourself. Those two things cannot be separated. Am I at odds with someone else? Do I need to have a deeper understanding of what it means to live and treat others the way that I want to be treated? And ask God to show you that this morning. Maybe there's someone in this room who has wronged you or frustrated you or belittled you. Maybe you need to go to that person and tell them that you forgive them. Maybe you've done that to someone. Maybe you need to go to them and and ask for forgiveness. All of that is acceptable during this time. Don't feel like you can't do that. That is why we gather together as a body. That is why we're not just individuals. We want to be of one accord. We want to be unified together. So when you're prepared, the worship team, like I said, is going to come up and play. When you're prepared, come and grab the elements. Go ahead and head back to your seat or take them up here. If there are kids in here, I would just ask that you'd exercise discretion for your kids. This is something we do together as a body, as those who have professed Jesus Christ. If you're not sure what that means, if you're not sure if you are in Christ, I would ask you to refrain. Just sit, contemplate what we've heard this morning. Contemplate the truth that Jesus came to die for you, to remove your sin from you, to give you, credit you his righteousness. Consider those things, and then I'd love to talk to you also, if you if you would like to. So, worship team is going to come up and I'm going to pray for us and we'll head to the table.